Good morning. Welcome again to uh, Grace Bible Church. I'll say that I'm always thankful to join the saints in worship of our Lord Jesus in spirit and in truth. John 4, the, 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 he said, the Lord Jesus said that we would worship him in spirit and truth. Now, as many of you, know, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about the nature of the local church and, and body life in the church. Recently, I've mentioned the level of commitment to the body of Christ as an indication of, Christ, of commitment to Christ himself. Now, I realize, fully realize, that some folks can struggle with this concept. They point to the more political aspects of the visible church and say, I'm devoted to Christ, but to the local church, well, not so much. Not so much. I know that I'm a part of the big C church, the big C church, so I don't need to necessarily be a part of the little C church. But I would argue that the big C church can't be real in our lives outside of the specific manifestation of the local assembly, the local church. You see, as finite humanity, we're bound by time and space, are we not? In other words, we live in a certain time, and we live in a certain place. The Big C Church is made up of saints from Pentecost all the way to Jesus' return, and it is spread throughout the globe. Spread throughout the globe. So all cr true Christians are part of that Big C Church. But since we are finite and bound by time and space, we need the local manifestation of the body of Christ. Christ himself helps us see this in Revelation 2 and 3. In those chapters, he writes to seven local churches. Do you realize that? Seven local churches. The church at Ephesus, which we've been studying in chapter, chapter 5, or Ephesians, the letter to Ephesians, and we're currently in chapter 5. We've returned there today. But we also have the church of Laodicea and the church of Philadelphia, and etc. Et so these are churches that exist in a distinct place at a distinct time in history. Yet they are all representative of the church universal, correct? The church, by definition, is an assembly. We come together as the church. The, the literal meaning of the Greek word for church is ekklesia. The literal meaning is the assembly of the called out ones. So therefore, a non-assembling assembly is a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction to think of assembly without actually assembling. And you see, Grace Bible Church is a local assembly or a church which exists in 2021 in Gainesville, Florida. And so we come together as a church. And as such, when you commit to fellowship and serve at Grace Bible Church, you're committing to fellowshipping and serving with the body of Christ, which Christ himself gave his blood to redeem. Now, I should add something else. My heart is never to chastise anyone for lack of commitment. I'm not here to chastise anyone. Personally, personally, this is me as shepherd, a shepherd, under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have learned to love the body of Christ with all its warps. And I derive joy from being here amongst the, the brethren. And I want to encourage you to experience the same thing. That's my heart for you, is that each one of you would experience the joy derived from being a part of the local church. I also know that those on the fringes are more likely to be targeted by the enemy. This is especially true when persecution comes. 
Last week I said I'm concerned when folks, or two weeks ago, I said I'm concerned when folks have little regard for the gathering of the local church. And I even said that I wonder if they have truly experienced the presence of our holy God. And I realize, I fully realize that that may be strong to some of you. But I say that because the New Testament epistles use language which indicates the togetherness and the unity of the body of Christ. You see, we're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and families spend time together. Families seek each other out, seek each other out in terms of fellowship and love. As we currently exist in time and space, we experience the fullness of what God has given us when we experience it with other believers. We experience the fullness of what God has given us in Christ when we experience it with other believers. Said another, another way, you will never be all that God intends for you apart from believers in, other believers in your life. That is, again, the work of the Spirit. We experience God's fullness in the Spirit as we interact with others in the body. I didn't come up with this on my own. The Apostle Paul says that the, the church is a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That we are brought together in the Spirit. We're being fitted together and made into a holy temple in the Lord. And it is in this context that we experience the fullness of God. Speaking of the fullness of God, many in the church are searching for how one experiences God's fullness, are they not? You know, the question is, can you take some drug like LSD to open up your mind to another realm? Can you drink alcohol which dulls your mind to this world and perhaps opens it to experience God? There are things which happen, these things happen that, that is in the church, I mean the world, but what about in the church? Well, sadly, many charismatic Christians run around trying to get what they call the second filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't believe or, or teach that there is a second filling, but having said that, we do believe that you as believers can experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. We experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. We believe that, that believers can be filled by the Holy Spirit. So how do we understand these things? Well, I believe Paul will answer these questions and more in the next few verses. Verses, verses 18 through 21. Let me pray for the sermon and read our passage as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning as we approach this sermon and a time of communion afterward. We thank you that you have brought together this body of believers, that you have placed each part here according to your sovereign wisdom. Father, may we live this out amongst the brethren. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read Ephesians 5, 18-21. We'll start in verse 15 for context. Paul writes, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, in 2015, the Telegraph, a newspaper in England, reported that 24,000 people showed up to Stonehenge to celebrate summer solstice, the longest day of the year. Attendance at the celebration had exploded from 10,000 people in 2000 all the way to 40,000 people in 2014. More and more folks came, caught wind of these drunken festivities, which included seeing Druids in full ceremonial regalia. Unfortunately, with the rise of attendance came an influx of people who vandalized the monument. There were safety concerns with having such a large crowd bent on getting drunk for the celebration. This came to a head in 2015 where they began to address the situation by instituting an alcohol ban and a $15 parking fee. Now that didn't that was met with certainly some resistance. King Arthur Pendragon <laughs> lambasted the changes calling the parking fee for a a pay to pray policy and alleged that look look it, for a couple of hours, three times a year, and, and one night, it's a working temple, even. So the people need a chance to celebrate before we get thrown out. Uh, they, they um, as you may expect, the, the attendance after this policy was cut in half to about 12,000 people. So they, they, they felt like they needed to address this drunken and disrespectful behavior, especially at a monument at a, that is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, no less. In the United States of America, we've talked about it before, the Burning Man Festival continues to uh, attract thousands of drunken partiers. In both festivals, there are many who attend for the purpose of just partying, just having a, having a good time. But for some, there is certainly a spiritual aspect of these celebrations. Mind-altering substances, especially alcohol, have been always been used as a part of pagan worship. Many pagans choose to express themselves by drinking lots and lots of alcohol and singing songs as well. During the Middle Ages, at Christmas time, peasants would knock on rich folks' doors and demand booze in exchange for a loud and drunken song. Now, these modern festivals with their singing and revelry, along with the flowing drink and open drug use, are rooted in pagan ritual from the ancient world. They give us some insight insight into pagan practice during Paul's day. At the time, at that time, at the time of writing the writing of the letter to the Ephesians, the worship of Dionysus, the god of wine, was widespread throughout the known world. It was prevalent in Asia Minor and in Macedonia, Greece, Italy, Egypt, Palestine, and even India. In Thessalonica, the historical evidence indicates that there was not only the Dionysian cult there, but a state priesthood of Dionysus existed there from the time of the founding of the city. A Latin inscription from Philippi shows that it, the cult of Dionysus was active there. Festivals worshiping this deity were prominent in Athens and in Corinth. The city of Ephesus was filled not only with the worship of Artemis or Diana, but with also with the cult of Dionysus. When Anthony entered the city of Ephesus, Plutarch says the city was full of ivy and harps and pipes and flutes and people hailing him, hailing him as Dionysus, the giver of joy and beneficence. Here again we see the prominence of, of 
music in these festivals. And again, we see the, the drunkenness is associated with these pagan religions. Put simply, the pagans believed that to commune with the gods, you had to put yourself into a drunken stupor to come to the highest level of intimacy. Those who participated in the Greek and Roman mythological religious systems believed that you could commune with the gods through ecstasy. According to John MacArthur, he says this, he says, frenzies and the ecstasies and the whirling dervishes, the self-hypnosis, the demonic things that went on, they called it ecstasy. Uh, they called it uh, from ext- ecstasia or uh, enthousia- enthusiasms. They would get themselves worked into a literal frenzy and an emotional bath. And in, in, in addition to that, they would drink and drink and drink until they were drunken. And they thought that that lifted them to the level of communion with the gods. Now you might be asking why I've spent so much time giving the history of these pagan rituals and their connection to alcohol and even to music. I've done this because I would argue that there's a clear connection to our passage in 5.18-21. In these verses, Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So you see this connection that Paul is making. Here at Grace Bible Church, we use a grammatical historical hermeneutic to interpret the Scripture. Said another way, we look at both the grammar of the language and the history at the time of the writing to interpret the passage at hand. So what we see here is that Paul is is writing and saying, do not get drunk with wine, and there's a reason that he said that, that's historical. Once we arrive at that interpretation, then we can draw out the timeless principles. Now we find ourselves studying the fifth of the five walk commands of Ephesians 4 through 6. This is the walk of wisdom. He he mentions that in, in verse in verse 15, to walk as, as wise men. In this passage, we're looking at Paul's instructions for walking in wisdom. He gives four instructions for walking wisely during these evil days. Now, three weeks ago, we saw in 5.16 that you must redeem your weeks closely. Put simply, you are to redeem your time and snap up every opportunity to serve the Lord. We must be diligent to use our time wisely for the sake of the kingdom of God. Every moment should be evaluated as to their contribution to the great commission of the church. But this doesn't mean that everyone will be in full-time ministry. What it means is is that everything in your life should be lived in support of the church's mission to make disciples of the nations, even your job. Secondly, in 517, we saw that you must recognize Yahweh's will conscientiously. That's 5.17. In this verse, Paul commands the church to stop being foolish and understand the will of the Lord. I would argue that in Paul's mind, he's saying stop being foolish because the days are evil. Currently, the world is under the control of Satan and the demonic realm. It is the will of God that the church demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God. Therefore, you as God's redeemed people are evidence that God has defeated sin and death. It, we, we live that throughout through our lives. We live that through our day-to-day walk. And as such, we are His victory procession. Therefore, we ought to walk in wisdom and understanding the will of God in Christ and in the church. And we ought to live according to the power which mightily works within us. Anything else is foolishness. 
This brings us to verses 18 to 20, which we'll start today. This is Paul's third instruction for walking wisely during these evil days. Third point, the third instruction is you must realize the Spirit's work conscientiously or consistently, that is. Look at your text in verse 18. We've already seen it. it says, Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now this verse is packed with truth, but it may be, it very well could be one of the more misunderstood verses in the New Testament. But let's take some time then to walk through the text to try to see what Paul is really meaning here. Now I don't generally divide points through between sermons, but we'll only be able to to study the verse, first part of verse 18 today. Again, we're moving slowly because I want you to understand each point that Paul makes. Now, earlier in the sermon, I have laid the groundwork for this first phrase. Paul says, do not and do not get drunk with wine. The question you should be asking of the text is, why does Paul put this command here? I would argue that the answer to, the, to this question lies within the context of Ephesians 5. In 4.17, Paul warns the church not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. He says in verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them or that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Then he goes on to say in verse 19, they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, we should recognize that Paul has some very specific things in mind as he pens these words. The study of Scripture is not merely an academic exercise. These writings, what Paul is saying, is tied to real events that occurred in real time. In this case, Paul is describing the lifestyle of pagan Gentiles. In 5.3, he says, But immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this I know with certainty. This is, clear. This is what we, I want you to understand. That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that you can't live like a pagan. You can't live in an immoral way and an impure way, and you can't live as an idolater and inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. And, and, and God. He's contrasting then the lifestyle of the Christian with their former lifestyles as pagan Gentile unbelievers. And in 5.8 he says this, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So Paul is painting a vivid picture of the lifestyle of those who live in the darkness. And he's warning the church at Ephesus not to fall back into, and I say back into because this is what they were called out of, don't fall back into that same manner of living. Romans twelve thirteen gives us the bridge. He says this, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. See, Paul tells the church at Rome that daytime is associated with proper behavior. 
Those who live in the day behave properly. But darkness then is associated with what? Carousing and drunkenness. In 1 Thessalonians 5.4, he also helps us understand the connection between light and sobriety and darkness and drunkenness. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.4, he says, I'm sorry, 5.5, he says, we are not of the, the, the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. So then again, we're seeing this connection between walking in darkness and, and drunkenness. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Undoubtedly, there were some in Ephesus who were partaking in these drunken deeds of darkness. And we see that connection to, to what was going on in pagan worship. Therefore, Paul is commanding the church at Ephesus to stop being foolish and to understand the will of Christ for the church. He goes on to say, and this is verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Now, I would argue that Paul is merely continuing with his description of the pagan Gentile lifestyle. As I mentioned in the beginning, alcohol and mind-altering substances have always been a part of pagan worship. The thinking that they're reaching, they're being more spiritual because of, of this drunkenness. That's not true, is it? So in this verse, Paul is telling the believers at Ephesus not to get drunk with wine because that's what unbelieving pagans do. Now, I should say that many commentators take this simply as an injunction against getting drunk, but I, I think that's putting the cart before the horse. They're jumping to the application without a, accounting for Paul's actual intent. And, and I would argue that his, at an understanding of his authorial intent yields a much more robust ability to apply the principle found in the verse. When we understand that alcohol was being used by the world for the purpose of worshiping false gods, then we can fully recognize Paul's, the full weight of Paul's injunction against drunkenness. And then we can fully realize the importance of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. You see, the, you see the, how that contrasts, right? It's the, it's the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. That's what we're striving for. That's how you have true spirituality. Now, I want to spend a few minutes, just a few moments, proving to you this to you and showing you why this is so powerfully beyond a mere prohibition of drunkenness. We should take a, a few moments to explore Paul's command. He, he, says that, he says, do not get drunk, which means to become intoxicated. In other words, this is a state of having your mental and physical faculties overpowered by indulging in intoxicants such as alcohol. The, the Bible has much to say about indulging in drink to the point of inebriation. The, the Proverbs actually are rife against warning, with warnings against drunkenness. Proverbs 21, 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. There's no wisdom in becoming intoxicated in what, with wine. According to this scripture, it is not wise to become intoxicated with strong drink. It's foolishness. In Proverbs 23.20, it gives a similar prohibition. Do not, be, do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. 
For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and the, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. See, that's the consequences of heavy drinking and of gluttony is that we will come to poverty and that we will come to, to laziness. We've all seen heavy drinkers who imbibe daily, right? As the day goes by, they drink more and more. They're not in control of themselves. The next day they arise with a hangover. Therefore, they begin to drink again to avoid that full crash. But I would argue that, that Isaiah 5, 11, and 12 provides the main problem with drunkenness, though. The main problem. Turn there if you would like. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5. It says, Woe to those... Verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Now, the Lord here pronounces woe on those who pursue strong drink in the morning and too much wine late in the evening. Again, we see the motif of darkness versus light, do we not? Right, but I want to draw your attention to what he says in verse 12. He says this, There are banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine, by flute, and by wine. You see, notice again that these banquets include music and alcohol. Again, these musical instruments uh, also accompany worship. But in this case, in the case of Isaiah, it is a faulty worship that amounts to nothing. He says this at the end of verse 12. He says this at the end of verse 12, but... They, they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. You see, intoxicants like alcohol will never help you be more spiritual. Actually, as a matter of fact, the, the drunkenness will cause you to forget the Lord and the work of His hands. That's according to Isaiah. This warning helps us understand Paul's command in Ephesians 5, does it not? When we participate in drinking to the point of drunkenness, it is not only unwise, but we are actually participating in the deeds of darkness. And these actions actually remove our ability to rightly worship God. And that's Paul's point. When we participate in these activities, we are not able to worship God in the right way. Back in Ephesians 5, Paul says that getting drunk is actually dissipation. This word has the idea of wastefulness. It refers to the reckless abandon which usually accompanies uh, drunkenness, especially as, you, as we think about those, uh, those examples that I gave earlier, especially drunken festivals and, and celebration. There is nothing good, nothing at all good that ever comes from these things. Participants in these events claim a spirituality, do they not? Do they not? But these things never come to nothing more than depravity on full display. Therefore, Paul is warning the church at Ephesus, he's warning them, do not participate in these deeds of darkness. Do not participate in drunkenness. Do not participate in this type of false worship because it is against a holy God. It's just wasteful. After the warning, he gives the answer to the, this type of drunken behavior. In eighteen, the last part of 18, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Just be filled with the Spirit. That's how you experience true worship is by being filled with the Spirit. Then he gives a description of that in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see now the connection to music. There is a connection of spirit, true spirituality to, to, to music and worship. But it's not through this means of drunkenness. It's through proper worship. And, and really, that's it. That's it. According to the last part of verse 18, the Christian is to be filled with the Spirit speaking and singing and giving thanks and subjecting ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. If you want true spirituality, you won't pursue it through drunkenness. You won't pursue it through deeds of the darkness. What you'll pursue it through is these things. These things. These things that are good. Now, of course, we'll take some time to work through each of these. Each of these verses. But I wanted you to put all this together in your mind so that we don't lose ourselves in the trees. Now, before we dive into 18b next week, I think we should drop back and look at the use of alcohol in the church. Let's take a few minutes to deal with that issue. The question we need to answer is whether the, the Christian is able to drink alcohol at all. Clearly, the Bible, very clearly, you've seen it, the Bible warns us against drunkenness. Therefore, the Christian should never partake, ever, partake in alcohol to the point of drunkenness. Now, the question is, does this prohibit all forms of drinking? Well, the answer, the simple answer is no. But I need to give you a few further thoughts as you look at this. The Bible, first, the Bible does not necessarily condemn the consumption of alcohol. In Psalm 114 verse, or 104, verse 15, God, uh, it says that God provides wine which makes a man's heart glad. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul told Timothy, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So we can surmise, then, that T Timothy didn't drink. Timothy had chosen not to drink because he understood the, the potential to cause others to stumble. You should be reminded that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to lead the church there. So we're, that's the connection that we can make with, with this situation in, in 1 Timothy 5. Now, I'm certain then that Timothy was aware of the reasons for Paul's ex exhortation not to get drunk with wine in Ephesians 5. Therefore, therefore, he didn't want to be a cause for any further stumbling. Do you see the connection? He didn't want to be accused of, of drinking and, and, and cause people to stumble by consuming wine. But in 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul tells him, consume some wine for medicinal purposes. Now, I would argue, that though, that we should not use this verse as a justification to drink socially. It is more of a, an allowance for medical purposes. And in this case, we should see this as an example of a man who has willingly limited his freedom at his own hurt. Yes, that's important. At his own hurt, he has willingly limited his freedom in order to, for the sake of, that is, for the brethren, of the brethren. Now, the Bible, as, while the Bible doesn't condemn all consumption of alcohol, we must carefully apply biblical wisdom as we consider these things. Now, I wanted to also tell you, secondly, that the, the Lord seems to, our Lord seems to allow for drinking alcohol. John 2 records Jesus turning water to wine. 
That's his earliest miracle. Uh, Luke 7, Luke seven thirty four. Jesus said, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. In other words, Jesus came living in an ordinary life. And there's no reason to believe that he didn't consume some wine. But one thing is for certain. If he did, he would never have been drunk with wine, right? But that is dissipation. That's sinful. So we know that if he, if he did, we can be certain that he would never have succumbed to drunkenness. Third, we must understand the issue of alcohol content, i.e. strong drink. The, the Bible talks about strong drink. So we must understand then why, why that's a, the distinction is made. And, and water in the ancient world was often polluted and carried many diseases. So in 1 Timothy 5, Paul told Timothy to use wine as a disinfectant to protect his health. Uh, to achieve this purifying effect, the ancients mixed water with wine, which lowered the alcohol content. They usually mixed it from large jugs. So the unmixed wine was in large jugs. And it was poured through a strainer into a large mixing bowl where, where it was mixed with water. The mixture was anywhere from 3 to 1 all the way to 20 to 1. Now, the 3 to 1 mixture, from my research, seems to be most widespread. But the wine content may have been driven by the availability of the wine and the pollution level of the water. Therefore, there's a lot of variability is the point. Let me put this in perspective. So, we're trying to understand this strong drink uh, prohibition. Natural wine can reach alcohol levels of 15%. Therefore, a 3 to 1 mixture would have about a 5% alcohol content, which, by the way, is still potent. Still potent enough to get drunk. For comparison, most brands of beer today have between 4 and 5% alcohol. In contrast, in the United States, 100 proof alcohol is about 50% alcohol. You can buy up to 196 proof, which is 96% alcohol, basically a cleaning agent. Let me give you some equivalents to help you understand. Now, again, what I'm trying to establish here is whether we should, how, how we should make the decision whether we should drink as Christians. Let me give you some equivalents. A, a single 12-ounce beer is equivalent to about a, an ounce and a half shot of hard alcohol such as whiskey, vodka, or rum. This same amount is equivalent to a 5-ounce glass of unmixed red or white wine. This has a similar alcohol content of about 12 to 15, per 15 ounces of wine mixed at 3 to 1. You get the point. 5 ounces of today's wine unmixed is about 15 ounces of mixed wine. That's the wine that Paul is probably referring to in 1 Timothy 5. <clears throat> so, the point is, is that the consumption of strong liquor or unmixed wine will result in drunkenness much sooner than the mixed wine that Paul is referring to in 1 Timothy 5. So, fourthly, if you choose to drink alcohol, you must never drink to the point of losing control of your physical, mental, and spiritual faculties. This point comes from all that we've seen in Scripture regarding the consumption of alcohol and, and drunkenness. I think this brings up a valid question then. What is the line, or where is the line, between sobriety and drunkenness? And I'm not sure there is a good answer to that, actually. I'm not sure that I can fully answer that question. 
But I don't think we should see as Christians how close we can get to that edge, right? I think we need to be very careful. When you visit the Grand Canyon in the areas around the visitor center, they have guardrails, right? These guardrails are to keep you from getting too close to the edge. They're designed to keep you from falling into the canyon and dying. But it would be foolhardy, right, to jump the fence and run to the edge. The guardrails are there for a reason. In the same way, beloved, it is foolhardy to test yourself with strong drink. The Bible's clear. Don't get drunk with wine. But it is foolhardy to test yourself, to see how far you can take it before you lose control of your faculties. Fifth, if you choose to drink alcohol, you must recognize the potential for causing the brethren to stumble. Now, this is a very important and very key point when it comes to drinking alcohol. Some Christians, we have to understand, some Christians may have come out of of a lifestyle of drinking and partying. Therefore, they associate drinking in any form as being dissipation. They, They see it as sinful because that's the lifestyle they came out of. And so... If you use the truth of Romans 14, 13, it says this. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. The principle that Paul is is speaking of in Romans 14 is, I need to live in such a way that I don't put any obstacles or stumbling blocks in the path of the brethren. My, My conscience, my conscience personally, may be free to drink alcohol. Because I know that I can have a drink of alcohol and never, never be sent in sin over it, as long as I don't push it to drunkenness. But if I know that my brother's conscience is not free in the same way, then I need to abstain from drinking in his presence for certain. But in some cases, in some cases, I may need to completely abstain. I may need to completely abstain to ensure that I never become that stumbling block. What would it say if I'm at the grocery store and I'm buying some wine and my brother who who struggles with it walks up and says, Hey, Pastor, how you doing? What you got there? It It wouldn't be very good, would it? It would potentially be a stumbling block for my brother. And going back to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, I am certain that he had the same attitude. I'm certain that he had the same attitude. He joyfully endured sickness, frequent ailments, stomach problems. He he joyfully endured those to ensure that he was not a stumbling block for the brethren, to, to ensure that he never caused the people at the church at Ephesus to stumble. Sixth, this is where it really gets tough. The Christian's attitude toward drinking must always account for the cross. Christian's attitude toward drinking must always account for the cross. Put another another way, we must never commit any sin for which Jesus suffered or died and died. And I'll even go further to say, we must never cause our brother to stumble and commit sin for which our Lord died. And Our Lord died to atone for all sins, including drunkenness. So if I cause my brother to stumble, 
If I cause my brother to stumble back into alcoholism, or being a slave to wine is a better way to put that, being a slave to wine, I've caused my brother to commit the sins that my Lord died for on the cross. I must never do that. I must be willing to limit myself. I must be willing to even completely abstain, if that's what it takes. Now, I'm not telling you not to drink. I'm not. But I am asking you to consider what the Bible has to say about it. Consider what our Lord has to say about it. Consider this the problem of drunkenness and the problem of causing your brother to stumble. And the idea that, that if I cause my brother to stumble and commit sin for which the Lord Jesus died for, it's horrible. In just a few moments, we're going to observe the Lord's death by partaking communion together. As we consider matters such as drinking alcohol, we must consider them with the cross in view, right? Matthew 16, 24, the Lord Jesus told His disciples. He says, Then Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. You see, our attitude, beloved, our attitude should be one of full surrender to our Lord. One of limiting ourselves, if that's what it takes. Because it says in verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Forfeits his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Will you, that, that drink that you just have to have? The drink that, that might cause your brother to stumble? So, then I should be willing, I must be willing, as a Christian, to forsake those freedoms for the sake of fully following Christ. You see, He went to the cross and He died for our sins. He took upon Himself the wrath of the Father so that we would be free from the condemnation of sin. And everything I do must account for Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Even drinking alcohol. Let me pray as we transition to this time of communion. As we do so, I would ask that you ready your heart this morning. Our gracious Lord, what a difficult subject. But we see Paul's prohibition here. We see this idea of people thinking that they could grow closer in worship through the drinking of alcohol. Yet, it does nothing but take us away. Lord, we see in Scripture that our attitude should be one of never doing anything that would cause another to stumble. Never committing any sin that, willingly committing any sin that you died for. 
Lord, we thank you for saving us by your grace. Through faith. May we walk according to all that you've done. May we walk in the light. Doing the things that are done in the day. May we avoid those things that are done at night. The drunkenness and the carousing. May we walk in a way that's pleasing to you. Father, it gives us great joy to do so. But more than that, it brings you great glory. As we are a demonstration, we're a demonstration to the rulers and authorities of what you have done in our lives to save us. May we always live in view of the cross. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.